Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today, we have Brian Kokendorfer. Brian is the managing member of ARC Equity Group, a Chicago-based real estate investment firm specializing in acquiring and operating apartment properties in the Midwest. Brian is a general partner in 334 units and limited partner in 650 apartment units with a total value of approximately $70 million and has 14 years of experience as a commercial real estate broker. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Brian. Thanks, Charles. Looking forward to the conversation. So what was your background prior to starting your investment company? Yeah, so I started ARC in uh, end of 2018. And before that, I've been a multifamily broker, as you mentioned, for since 2007, really. So mm -hmm. I got into brokerage in 2007, started off in the retail and office leasing space for the first four years. And uh, three, three, four years, about 2010, I started focusing more on multifamily. And then by the end of 2010, I switched over to multifamily full-time. And so spent the next 10 years just doing multifamily brokerage. So see a lot of clients, you know, buy properties, rehab them, sell them, just, you know, really piqued my interest. I was making money along the way. I started investing passively in about 2016 in a couple of deals and then started acquiring actively in 2019. Nice. And what was the reason that you, uh, you chose real estate as your investment vehicle, just seeing all the money that was being made by your clients? Seeing that, and, you know, I'd always had an interest in real estate. You know, when I was younger, my parents had a six flat, which, you know, they only owned for a couple of years. And I just, you know, kept thinking throughout the years, if they would have held that long term, you know, they'd have it fully paid off by now. And I was always just kind of, you know, enamored by the thought of other people paying your bills. If you own a property, all the tenants are paying rent and they're covering all the bills and you can make a profit off it. And so I used to do little things like that, like go cut the grass, clean the hallways. So I was always kind of interested but as I got into brokerage, seeing, you know, successes that other people had, seeing some failures that other people had, and really the tax benefits as well, that kind of pushed me over to where I said, you know, this is what I want to do full time. Nice. So you started off passively. Can you tell us about your first couple uh, active deals that you were in? Yeah. So the first one that I bought was in Northwest Indiana. Uh, so I'm based out of Chicago and Northwest Indiana is about an hour, hour, 15 minutes outside of Chicago. And we found a hundred unit property in the town called Chesterton. And it was a property that was bought distressed about two years prior to us buying it. The prior owners, they had renovated about 10% of the units and done some CapEx, but there was quite a bit to go. So we ended up doing a about a million dollar renovation on it. So about 10,000 per unit. Two thirds of that was updating the units. About a third of that was a CapEx budget, including adding a fitness center, renovating the clubhouse and doing some landscaping and exterior lighting work. So uh, that was the first one. We just finished the rehab on it in the last two, three months. And we'll like to be going back in for a supplemental loan uh, later this year. That's awesome. And uh, so what is your current investment criteria and strategy for your group? You know, it, it's shifted over the last year or so with COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously everybody wants the value add potential, go in, renovate units, you know, force some appreciation. The last deal that I acquired was a 53 unit property in Indianapolis and that was already stabilized. Mm -hmm. And we were able to put in really good long-term debt and just take advantage of the, 
existing cash flow and we're it's going to be a nine to ten percent cash on cash year one and we're taking away all that risk of you know potential rent upside and who knows where the market and interest rates are going to be in two years if i did a bridge loan right now so it shifted a little bit can you tell us about that debt we talked about it pre-recording but yeah so we put on a long-term fannie mae loan on that property it was a 15-year fixed loan interest rate was 3.69 percent with eight years of interest only And what I liked about that loan is that with Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, as long as there's seven years left on the loan, you can do a supplemental or somebody can assume it. So we can go five years into this and there will still be 10 years left on the loan with three years left of interest only at a sub 4% interest rate. So it's almost like somebody buying a new property with Freddie Mac because Freddie's going to be 10 years with three years interest only. And so we have a couple different exit strategies there. And if we want to keep it long-term, we can always take out a supplemental to replenish some of the capital. Yeah. And that's great too, because if it's assumable, that means that if interest rates do go up, you've added additional value to your property because now they're assuming the debt you have at this uh, extraordinarily uh, fantastic interest rate of uh, 3.69. Exactly. It becomes an asset versus a liability. Yeah, exactly. What is, um, tell us just if some listeners don't understand what a supplemental loan is. So supplemental loan is, you know, instead of doing a bridge loan where you get a short-term loan while you do renovations, then you refinance to get some capital out. Basically with Fannie Mae, you can do a supplemental loan if there's seven years left and your existing loan stays in place. So your primary loan does not change. So we're locked into that 3.69% rate over the course of 15 years. But if we decide to pull out a supplemental loan, if we can either add some value or the market goes up, we can go back for a second loan, essentially up to a 75% loan to value mm-hmm. and at the current interest rate of that time. So if in five, six, seven years from now, we want to go back, we want to recycle some of our capital, but keep the property. And, you know, we bought the property in the low 4 million range. Let's say it's worth 5 million now. We can get, take a new loan up to, you know, 75% of the new value at that interest rate without changing our existing rate. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for explaining that. It's almost like if uh, someone's in single family, uh, they consider a second mortgage or a HELOC or something like that. And um, obviously better terms than a HELOC that are usually variable, but it allows you to capture some of the value out of your property. And then also, um, you know, it's, it's your major principal loan in this situation, your senior debt is going to be fixed at that great rate. So even if your new debt is a little higher, you're going to have a rate that, uh, is altogether pretty pretty low still and that's great so yeah we assume that even if rates went up significantly into the high fours with the small supplemental we'd still be at a blended four percent rate at worst case scenario so let's talk about how you're acquiring deals because we usually talk to a lot of syndicators on here and you're joint venturing deals so can you tell us a little bit about joint venturing uh a little bit about it and then why you're doing it versus syndicating yeah, so, so far, all the deals that I've done have been as part of a joint venture. Uh, I've worked with three different partnership groups, and, you know, it's interesting, all of them I met through brokerage. You know, they were all clients at one point who then, you know, over the years became friends. And as I was starting to get into the investment side, I started telling everybody what I wanted to do, and a couple of different partnership opportunities came about. So uh, with the joint ventures, there's a couple structures. You know, a couple of them are just, you know, there's three, four guys. We just split it up. You know, if we, uh, those are more the heavier value add properties in which we know we're going to get a lot of the capital back in the first, you know, 12 to 24 months. So we'll go ahead and acquire a property. We'll just, you know, split it up three or four ways. And 
renovate the property, refinance 18, 24 months in, but we've locked in with a local bank to backside debt already. So we have 12 or 18 months, but then we have already have a fixed 10 year loan in place after that. So I like that process as well because it takes away the risk of a standard bridge loan and then going back for refinance later. So we can lock it in upfront by paying a little bit more now. And on the other partnership structure, uh, I do more, I found the deal, brought the deal in, I'm putting my own money in. So I'm getting a percentage of the initial cash flow, but I'm also doing all the asset management, getting asset management fees as well. Nice. And with a joint venture, everybody has to be active. So how are you splitting up roles in that group? Say you said four people, I believe. Uh, how are you splitting up those roles so that everybody has an active role to keep everything um, legal? Yeah. So, you know, I do more of the acquisition stuff on the front end, acquisition, deal sourcing, you know, finding that. Then, you know, in that particular example, there's two guys that focus mostly on the property management. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one focuses on just asset management, working with the lender and doing that kind of stuff. So we all kind of have our little roles, but for me, it's deal sourcing and acquisitions for the most part. Nice. So when you're buying properties and you're buying 50 unit properties, um, how strategic are you when, when you're purchasing? Are you buying anything that pencils or are you focusing on certain markets, certain areas, neighborhoods? Um, how, how are you kind of uh, creating your, your business plan? You know, it, it's both. I think market is really important to me right now and just seeing what's going on in the market. You know, having just acquired something in Valparaiso last year, you know, I knew that Valparaiso, they got a university there. It's been a you know, high population growth area. A lot of people are leaving the Southeast suburbs of Chicago and going over to Indiana for various reasons. So that little Northwest Indiana pocket has really been growing. Jobs are going there. Amazon just announced two distribution centers in one in Valparaiso, one in Maryville, which is right next door. So that was something where really liked the area and the property. The property was more of a value add. So that's gonna cash flow well after about a year and a half, two years. But going into it, it was more about the area. The 53 unit in Indianapolis, it was more about the existing cash flow. I liked the area as well. Obviously, you want to try to find an area where, you know, BC area, but that it's kind of in the path of either redevelopment or, you know, people are moving that way as the market shifts. Yeah, you kind of want to make sure that you're in that wave of gentrification at some at some level where you're driving a neighborhood and you're seeing properties that have been renovated, properties that need to be renovated, properties that are actively being renovated. And uh, you kind of know that you're in the path of that gentrification, which is a great place to be because you can write off the appreciation of the property that you're working on. And then you're also writing off the appreciation of the area, which uh, the both best of both worlds. Exactly. Where are you finding deals? I mean, you're a broker. Are you finding these deals on market? Are you finding them through other brokers? Are you utilizing other methods that are... Uh, maybe not as uh, normal as uh, other people? Yeah, it's both. You know, we bought a couple of deals uh, through brokers on market, but, you know, once you're into a property and you establish yourself in the area, mm -hmm. brokers are going to start calling you with some off-market opportunities. The Valparaiso one that we bought, it was actually a relationship with a property manager. So we were looking at a different property in the neighborhood and, the, you know, that one wasn't going to work for us, but the property manager just mentioned in the conversations like, hey, you know, another client of mine is thinking about selling. He doesn't want to put it on the market, but, you know, I could probably get you into tour that one. So we went and tour that one the next week and ended up buying it. So it wasn't on the market. It was just a property management relationship. But I had known that property manager for several years. So we were able to, you know, have some open conversations. And I think it's just really about building relationships over time. 
because it's you know invaluable as far as information that you can get and what I think a lot of people, especially newer people, underestimate is that if you can share information with brokers and property managers, that also helps them in their business. So if you hear about an off-market deal that you pass on or you know, deal that another broker is shopping around, you know, feel free to tell other brokers about that. That's good information for them. That's good market knowledge. And so they'll reciprocate that. So, but it's all about relationships. Yeah, that's all I always tell people is, uh, as I found, is real estate has to get that competitive advantage over other people that are bidding against a property that you want is uh, it's relationships and it's uh, access to money. And if you have salt relationships and you have access to capital, I mean, you're going to have a competitive advantage and you can see all the large players in any market. They have both those, like you said, they have these uh, really seasoned relationships with property managers and brokers. So when you've closed deals, like you have, now you're on the list for these brokers because they know you can close. They know you have a team in place and you're just, not kicking tires and uh that's awesome but how are you doing property you, you mentioned property manager management are you using the same property management company on all your properties in this area uh no a couple different ones you know in northwest indiana it's a different one than indianapolis so we do have uh, i'd say two property management companies between them and you know one thing about if you're going to go into a new market outside of your own area and it's a larger property Agencies specifically, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they're going to require you to have a third-party property management company. So at some point down the line, you might be able to build out your own and scale up, but it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, with the agencies to manage yourself. So we are hiring third-party right now. The other thing, too, is when I see, when I'm underwriting a property and we're reviewing it and uh, someone has, they're self-managing it or it's their in-house property management or whatever they want to call it, a property management company that they own, it's always something where you kind of put your brakes on a little bit because now you're trying to, the percentage they put in there might not be the percentage that you're going to be paying afterwards versus someone that you're buying a property from and says, we're already paying you know 5% property management on this through ABC management. And you kind of know there that um, even if they have a ton more properties in the area and that's why they're getting that discount, that's a reasonable rate, right? And you might have to change that depending on your relationships in that market. But what do you feel when you're looking at a property? Maybe I imagine some of these properties possibly had been self-managed. Yeah, you know, we, we're paying four to 6% for the most part. You know, on one of our smaller properties, the 53 unit Indianapolis, we're actually paying 6%. But part of that agreement is that management company has five other properties within a few miles. Yep. And so they have other staff. So they're pulling one of their staff members over to our property two days a week. And we're not paying for that payroll. So I, I look at management as management and payroll blended into one mm -hmm. because how you structure it is going to change. So like we're okay paying a little bit of a higher management percentage, but we're not paying that manager's salary versus yep. somebody might be paying a three or 4% management fee, but paying a manager's salary. So I look at it as, you know, I separate out the line items, but I kind of look at the total blended cost. Yeah. yeah. Makes perfect sense because if you're paying 3% or three and a half percent for something, you might be paying $40,000 a year for someone to be on site, or maybe if you're using part-time, maybe 20, 25,000. So blending it all together gives you an accurate idea of uh, what you're actually paying for, for management on that property. Yeah. It's hard to look at that apples to apples because everybody runs things a little bit differently. So. Right. Especially when you're coming from some mom and pop properties or ones with the books that aren't as clean as you would like. And uh, you're trying to figure out what's personal expenses, what's actual property expenses, what's from other properties that they own. Um, and uh, it can be kind of uh, a mess, but it uh, usually that's where you're finding deals. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's how you can also find some efficiencies in there. And that's one easy way to increase the NOI. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you can just cut off some expenses, that's the best thing. If you're able to fix or resolve some issues with mismanagement on a property, they're usually inexpensive or free to fix. And it goes right to your NOI, which is a great way of increasing the value of the property without having any risk of money going out. And uh, you can do it usually day one or within the first 90 days of owning the property. Yep. So how has being a licensed real estate professional helped your investing business? Relationships is probably the main thing, you know, as a broker, especially doing it for almost 15 years, you build a lot of relationships over time. Mm -hmm. And as you get to know people and clients, you know, when you do a transaction with somebody, you're talking to them multiple times a week for that entire two, three, four month process. And you start doing multiple transactions with a certain buyer or seller, and you get to know them pretty well. You get to know about their families and, you know, their interests outside of real estate. So you just become friendly over time. And that's been one main thing, you know, I've always tried to be careful. And I think one challenge that brokers have is, you know, especially if you're a multifamily broker and buying multifamily properties, you need to be careful not to be competition with your clients. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to upset your existing client base by acquiring properties in the neighborhoods that you're selling properties. So that's why I tried to shift more to Indiana for my acquisitions when I was doing brokerage in Illinois. And, you know, I never wanted to, I wanted to walk that line and you just got to be careful. Like I said, you don't want to upset a client. And if you're buying a great property in the neighborhood that they would buy a property, they're going to think, well, you're just giving us, you know, you're taking yeah. all the good properties down and you're giving us all the bad properties. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, it's, it's a fine line that you have to walk. Yeah. yeah because they want to know that you're, you know what you're talking about as an investor, but they also don't want you taking the deals that they're, they're trying to buy from you. Exactly. So that's, uh, that's interesting. Uh, one thing that you talked about was property management. Uh, I, I like the idea of having property managers that have properties or managing properties in the neighborhoods or in the areas that I own in because they know the demographic of the tenant, which is most important, better than anyone. And that's especially true when you're getting into C-class properties. But they know the area, but also they're going to have handymen in that area all the time. And especially with smaller properties where you don't have on-site, it's really important where they're stopping by, they're driving by your property multiple times a day. But then I hear from other people that say they don't want any kind of management in their area. And uh, because they think that when someone calls in the rent an apartment, it won't be going to your property. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's a valid concern. You know, with the particular setup we have in Indiana, Indianapolis, the manager, their properties that they manage, they're all C-class properties. And this is a, you know, newly renovated B-class property that we have. So it's a different product type for them. So it actually gives them some options, you know, when a tenant wants to move or upgrade, they push them towards our property. And if a tenant's looking for a certain price point, we're going to be below that price point anyways. So I don't really see them as competition, but I think the pros outweigh the cons, you know, having, like you said, a full-time maintenance staff, various property managers, they have the system and infrastructure in place. And, you know, I emailed the maintenance person this morning at our property because we're looking at a different property about 10 minutes away. I wanted to drive by it and check out the area. That's just, you know, good information to have before we even go out and look at a property. So I think the pros outweigh the cons, but you do have to be careful. You know, I wouldn't want too many properties that are, you know, direct competition for my property. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. It's, it just depends on the specific situation, but I like the idea of the property managers knowing what they're getting themselves into when they take your property over, because you want to make sure that they're not crossing too many classes of properties and uh, you're your uh, property is going to be the new class that they're, they're managing. So, 
So I like to ask brokers because you have a lot of, you know, commercial is so much different than residential. And I think it's a whole different mindset when you're talking to a residential agent, when you're buying a property, they're more into the education process with their, with the potential buyer. And with a broker, if, if an investor reached out to you and your brokerage interested in buying properties, what could they do to show you that they were a serious investor that warranted your time? Well, I think I can tell pretty quickly by the questions that they ask up front if, you know, if they're newer to this or if they've been doing this for a while. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, if somebody calls me and says, hey, I want to buy, you know, send me all your deals off market that are above a nine cap. You know, I, I'm not going to spend too much time with them. Right. <laughs> if somebody's just, you know, even if they're newer, but they're coming in saying, hey, you know, I, I got a couple smaller properties or, you know, I'm working with a partner who's got some experience. We're looking to expand into this particular area. And, you know, I'll always add people onto our email list because there's no harm in it and you never know what's going to happen. But I think consistent follow-up. So if, you know, somebody calls me and says, hey, I want a property, you know, 30 to 50 units in this particular area, and I send them something that fits the criteria, a lot of times you just don't hear back. And it's like, well, I don't take you very seriously if you're not going to even follow up and tell me why you do or don't like this property. Mm-hmm. You know, is it, you know, the income? Is it the property? Is it the you know, CapEx, like just give me some feedback as a broker and then that will help me send you better properties going forward. But when you just don't respond, that's, that's always kind of a red flag for me. Yeah, that's a huge thing. And it doesn't have to be an in-depth, like 12 tab underwriting. It can be some bullet points that you write back and saying, you know, whatever it might be that the problem is that you're worried about management. I think on the pro forma is too low and I have to do this and I don't think it's in a pencil here or blah, blah, blah. But just getting back to you and letting you know, I mean, that tells you what direction they're leaning in. And then that way you can focus properties to them that might fit that criteria a little better. Yeah. And I think going out to tour properties will show a broker that you're serious. And it's also a great way to get FaceTime with a broker versus trying to, you know, meet them for coffee or lunch. You're going to spend 20 to 45 minutes at a property tour anyways, for the most part. So go meet them face to face at a property, walk through, you know, have conversations there. But when brokers know that people are at least looking at properties, even if they're not offering on everything they look at, they know that that's at least a serious buyer. And there's people that I've worked with for 10 years before I sold them a property. So it's not that you have to, you know, always automatically buy a property, but just be out in the field, you know, be checking out properties, send your maintenance guy if you can't make it, whatever the case is, but just, you know, FaceTime, constant interaction and follow up. Yeah. And the other thing too, to show that you're serious, I've said is that, um, you know, see what other properties that broker has sold or been part of and uh, drive them and tell them, you know, I like this neighborhood on Willow. I don't like this over on Oak and this is the side, this is exactly what I'm looking for over here. And that really gives you the right direction. And the person spending that time, they're just not, you know, writing behind their computer and just trying to get deals because that's what they were told from their coaching program. They're actually out there in the streets and they are reviewing deals that you've done and giving you feedback on them and telling you, uh, this is what I want. And this is not the area, but this is the property and stuff like that. Yeah. And especially if you're newer to this and you're trying to build that relationship with the broker up front, those things are key. And I would also recommend that if you're reaching out to brokers and that broker has a team, you want to reach out as a newer investor to one of the younger brokers. Yeah. They're going to spend a lot more time with you building that relationship versus the senior broker who's been doing it for 15 or 20 years. They already have their core client base built up. And the junior brokers are going to be the ones that are going to be able to spend a lot more time. And they're going to be a lot more motivated to work with you and help you out when it comes time to getting a deal. Yeah. And they're the ones that want to build their book of business. And they're usually the ones that are going to handle some of the smaller properties as well, where you see the senior brokers, 
their name's going to be all on the 100, 150 unit plus deals, um, $20 million plus kind of stuff, because that's what they're working on. But uh, yeah, it's, that's great. That's great uh, information. So uh, as we wrap up here, what mistakes do you commonly see new or experienced real estate investors make? You know, one I've seen recently that stuck out to me because I've seen it three, four times now just this year is, you know, sometimes people send me other underwriting models in which they'll, you know, hey, we like this property. Can you tell me what you think? And you got to be careful. A lot of underwriting models, if you're putting in a market rent based, you know, if today's rent is 850 and market rent is 900, the underwriting models automatically going to calculate the 900 rent based on turnover year one. And, but they also put in, two, three, 4% rent increases year one. So you're kind of double dipping on the actual income. And what I noticed is, you know, look at the specifically T3 or T6, see what the average income collected is. If the average income collection is $50,000 per month on a property and your month one collection rate is 60 or 65,000, mm. something's off. And maybe you can get up to that point in 12, 18, 24 months. But a lot of people factor that into year one and they're almost double dipping on the rent increases and bringing the mm -hmm. property up to market rent. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And when he says T3 and T6, that's trailing three months and trailing six months. The, um, that's, that's great. The other thing too, that's the first thing I look at when I'm looking at underwriting is someone sends me underwriting is the rent increases. And that's the first thing I'm going to check. And also how aggressive they are in their value add. If they're starting it, you know, we're in COVID, let's say, or we're finishing up COVID, whatever it might be, and they're waiting 12 months to do it or whatever. What's their downtime for doing the renovations on their unit? I mean, you're not going to like get a tenant out, renovate it and re-rent it in 30 days, right? I mean, especially if you're doing so many different units. Yeah. So it's just something that you're only saying you're taking this off the line for two weeks or three weeks. And that might be a realistic if you're painting and cleaning, but not if you're actually doing value add, right? You're actually repositioning the unit in the sense of uh, new bathrooms or new kitchens or something that's going to uh, greatly increase the rent. So yeah, that's awesome. That's great information. So how can our listeners learn more about you and your company? Uh, you can go to my website. It's arcarcequitygroup.com. My email is brian with an I. So brian at arcarcequitygroup.com. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I'll put all those links into the show notes and uh, looking forward to connecting with you in the near future. Thanks, Charles. Appreciate it. Hi guys, it's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at schedulecharles.com. That's schedulecharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars Incorporated exclusively.